0: 42, Journey to Mongo. After narrowly escaping from the stone palaces of Newport, our heroes sought respite on a near-forgotten island on the border of sea and sky. As Chris repaired the FCAC, Jason received a transmission from back in time, heralding the arrival of a new threat. The crew prepare for a journey down the associative mindways of IMDB to follow the free associative trail of trivia, skipping from credits to quotes along the vermilion and gold plastic-sheened path of sequins and laments to the camp kingdom of Flash Gordon! Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Chris.
1: And uh, we are, for better or for worse, your podcast. Oh. (laughs) 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 And we're here today to discuss 1980s Flash Gordon, a movie which seems to mean a lot to a lot of people. That was probably the biggest shock about researching it. I mean, I had never seen the movie before. What? Nope. What kind of a monster are you? Just, I, 1980. Just just a garden variety monster. I'll tell you what kind I am. I'm the kind of garden variety monster who in 1980 was spending time watching such films as a little space opera, Empire
0: Strikes Back, ever heard of it? Mm -hmm. Or The Shining? Mm -mm. Or The Fog? Or Altered States? Altered States. That's the one about the recount in uh, 2000? (laughs) Or Superman Two. Oh, yeah. Or, it, it was a good year. Or wow. Xanadu,
1: or The Stuntman, or Smokey and the Bandit 2, or Urban Cowboy, or The Big Red One, or 9 to 5, or Dress to Kill, or American Gigolo, or Ordinary People, or
0: Airplane, Wait, or Friday the 13th, or Raging Freaking Bull, or age, you were going to see uh, American Gigolo? Your mother was well, watch American Gigolo at your age? No, I just was reading off
1: a list. But I'm just saying, it's easy to have missed Flash Gordon, I guess, unless you were friendless and... Your, Six. your parents took you to the movies.
0: I, yes, exactly. <laughs> because yes.
1: when I watched Life After Flash, which is a very strange documentary about, talk about, we were just making fun of some of the on-the-nose dialogue. Like, what do you mean Flash Gordon is approaching? Well, sir, I mean he's actually <laughs> approaching. And there's a lot of writing like that in this movie. <laughs> but every person who is interviewed in the film seemed to have formed formative Opinions and reactions to the film as very young men. Right. So, I don't want to just trash the movie because that's not fun for anyone. It's not a good movie by any stretch of the means. It's not. Wait, what? I was wondering why they still make movies. <laughs> 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 it's like, we've done it. Put it to bed. It's kind of like what people were saying after Fleabag Season 2. Other showrunners were like, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do with my life. I obviously can't make anything that's going to ever be as good
0: as that. That's the end of golden age of television. Flash Gordon sort of like, done. So, uh, I saw it as a child uh, and Mm -hmm. haven't seen it since, and I really did not think I would enjoy it at all, maybe just for some of the visuals, Uh, but but I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Though, kidding aside, I don't think you could call it good with air quotes. It's basically fascinating for the way Flash Gordon as a character
1: was a ripoff of Buck Rogers. Right. Buck Rogers, I did... Forty seconds of Googling, so I'm pretty sure I'm authoritative on I'm the sorry. topic I'm about to expound upon. These are things that I have been reading about for years. You could really trace back everything. The MCU, all this stuff goes back, really, to Buck Rogers. I, was it a cartoon? I don't know what it was. No. I, I mean, I know it's, it's being in, in a magazine and, yeah.
0: and then a comic strip, and it was specifically King Features created Flash Gordon to be a rival comic strip. It's funny, now in our day of reboots, one of the reasons that Flash Gordon was created was because King Features couldn't get the rights. Right. To John Carter from Mars is written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Even then, people were just trying to reboot old IP.
1: And in maybe the greatest example in One Door Closes, Another Door Opens, the whole fucking reason Star Wars movies exist is because... George Lucas could not get the rights to Flash Gordon from Dino De Laurentiis.
0: George Lucas went on to do Star Wars, but he wanted to do this. Yes, George Lucas was definitely watching the Larry Buster Crab movie serials. Yeah. But it's an interesting, you know, again, it's potentially super boring, but also kind of interesting. What was the newspaper strip versus the serial? And George Lucas was coming from the serial versus, I think, uh, what's his name, Brian Blessed. Yes. Talked about having been a fan of the strip. Well, Brian Blessed is so understated a performer and (laughs) raconteur.
1: (laughs) Brian Blessed in Life After Flash is a veritable. I mean, the man cannot move a pencil away from himself (laughs) without an operatic gesture. It's incredible. That's a talent. I mean, if if I was sitting uh, there, Brian, please.
2: I was saying to the butter, you must get on the toast.
1: Toast (laughs) needs butter. (laughs) Okay, Brian, could you just pass the butter? (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my
1: god what
0: did you gift. know he was offered the role of Doctor Who to be the second doctor and he had to turn it down because of scheduling conflicts <laughs> oops it's worth
1: renting Life After Flash just to yeah. glory in Brian Blessed's bizarre interview which for some reason is taking place inside a recording studio with instruments on the walls even though it's it doesn't public- have
0: anything to do with what he's talking about because that's probably his house He's like, I yeah, got they? 100 hobbies. I'm a musician. <laughs> I'm a poet. I 7%. I go to Nepal. I used to be a boxer. I boxed with the Dalai Lama, which everybody says is just oh, exhausting.
1: Yeah. We sparred with the Dalai Lama. Brian, just
0: turn it down <laughs> to 11 and a half. OK, he doesn't need to go there all the time. <laughs> it's like, wow. Oh you God. boxed with a guy who's well known for being a pacifist. Also, he has two lines in here that have I don't know if they quite reach the uh, flames. Flames from the side. Pretty Saddam- damn close. One of them was dive. Dive. dive! dive! Yes, as well as Gordon's Alive! <laughs> I forgot! Oh my god. Talk about
1: chewing the scenery. Um, but with people that, love him, for, right? He's
0: great! He's so. fantastic. I mean, yeah, he's funny in general, funny and he does have that like he's I, larger than life when it said that he played Porthos once in like an adaptation of the three musketeers. I was like, well, of course he did. I don't I don't know what that means, but, you know, the three musketeers, I don't know the different yeah, characters. it's a type Porthos, Aeneas and, and Sam. Those are the three musketeers. <laughs> no, what are the names of the three musketeers? Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. Ah, like the cologne from the eighties. <laughs> Probably. It was a very classy cologne for people who it read. Was. Here's some Hawkman. Oh, 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 oh. Heroes hit! I'm going in after him. Uh,
2: spine! Oh, oh well. Who wants
1: to live forever? <laughs> Dad! I got to give it to Brian Blessed, man. The yeah. dude delivers. You want over the top? He's going to bring it to you. Yeah. Love him. Uh, it's so over the top. It's so cartoonish. But, but where it goes horribly wrong, there are three people in the whole movie who acquit themselves positively as actors. Would you like to know who they are? Sure. Max von Sydow as Emperor Ming. Natch. Timothy Dalton does a competent job in a ridiculous role of like <laughs> space Robin Hood, whatever yes. the fuck he is. He's in. He's
0: oh, He's playing give him it better than
1: competent. He's, I he's mean, he's playing it seriously and and as such he actually is in something when he's in it. He's the Shenandoah of this film. He didn't realize <laughs> He didn't realize it. <laughs> it was a comedy. I think Peter Weingard as Clytus yeah. does a great job. Yes. That's it. Period. Everyone else, including, tragically, all your stars, are completely incompetent. Sam J. Jones, if you were taking a picture of a person for a movie poster, would be great. He has a lantern jaw. Yes. He's blonde haired, not blue eyed. They tried that. (laughs) Dino Dino had him (laughs) fitted for blue contact lenses. And let me tell you, contact lenses in 1980 didn't feel good, so he didn't wear them. And then I didn't know this. I don't think you knew it either until watching the documentary that most of his dialogue is dubbed. And when you listen to him, even now, what? How many years is it from 1980, Chris? Math time? Uh, 40? 39. Seriously? Yeah. 80, 90, 2009. It's still 2019. 80, 90, 20, 29. 80 to
0: 20,009 2000. would be 19 years. No. 80 to 90 is 10. That's why I said 39. Oh. <laughs> from 2000. Okay, 39 not years. Not 20,000. <laughs> 39
1: years. Your voice doesn't change that much <laughs> from, your voice now is probably no different from when you were 24. Maybe a little deeper, but once your voice changes, that's kind of your voice. Right. So my point is, if the internet was up right now and I could play this clip, which I can't, which will be kind of ironic in a
0: podcast about science fiction future time, when all the clips we of the world to get were available. We a handle on present time technology <laughs> as opposed to worrying about rocket ships and rocket cycles. Where are you?
2: Flying blind on a rocket cycle flying
1: blind on a rocket cycle. I'm not saying that his acting would have saved the day had he not quit the picture and been available for additional dialogue recording in the manner that most stars would have been, but it does critically take him one step further from being present in any scene because the voice doesn't match the drapes. (laughs) That he's wearing in his costume. He used that old saw. Did you realize when watching it? No, I did not realize. And I don't think it's all his lines. It's one of those kind of unexplained things. Peter Weingard says that he knows who the guy was. He couldn't remember his name. But I think it's pretty incontrovertible that Sam J. Jones quit the film after principal filming. Like they went home during a Christmas break and he just and never he came back. back. And so they had to do some body double work. I think it'd be fairly common in a movie of this sort where you have so much stuff going on that ADR, as they call it, additional dialogue recording, would be a pretty important part of the final result. Right. And I think way more common also in like Italian cinema where Dino De Laurentiis, the producer is coming from. Yes. But the whole thing is totally laid in afterwards. Like if you watch some Italian movies from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, everything is dubbed. I watched the documentary Lost Souls, the one about uh, Richard uh, Jenkins.
0: Sherman, Richard. Richard, something like that. But the that's attempt the attempt to make the island of, of Doctor Moreau, yeah. which it then ended up being so John Frankenheimer. In it, somebody talks about him when, at one point, when he was shooting a film in Italy, and he was gonna he was gonna blow his mind because he was used to American crews and Italian crews. Apparently, they talk like during. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't take. matter. They do, yeah, they yeah. do not. And he was like, "There's no silence. Could you guys be <laughs> quiet?" And they're
1: like, "No, we, that's, that's not how, that's how we make that's not how we make up the telecine." That's what a crew sounds like in Italian. I
0: think everybody in that fucking espresso too, Every, weren't right. they? But everybody, everybody who mentions Dino De Laurentiis feels the need to do that old Italian stereotype. Although you Look at him talk, though; it is kind of fun. He is fascinated. He is his own. Has anyone
1: made a Dino De Laurentiis documentary yet? Question. I was looking him up on IMDb, and he's made some of the greatest movies ever made, but then he's also made stuff like this. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it,
0: you know, it just goes to show, as, as you often say, like the line between art and crap. (laughs) I don't know. It's how history remembers it. We're shooting ourselves in the foot because
1: this episode of the podcast would be vastly more successful if we celebrated Flash Gordon like
0: all the comic book geeks and nerds do. Well, listen, I was about to. Yes, I don't think Sam Jones, even though he has a soft spot in my heart because he was not only in this, but he was in a uh, television pilot for another comic book property, The Spirit, television show about 10 years after. Even though I agree, all the people that you mentioned as being the best, I thought that Melody, Um, Melody Anderson. Melody Anderson. I thought she did a nice job. Really? You know, I think part well, of it is, maybe in a thankless role. To me, it didn't seem that thankless. You mean travel agent Dale yeah, that Arden? That was, that was, fuck. <laughs> it was an odd uh, choice. Where is she going? Where are they flying to? Well, they're flying back to New York from somewhere where he drove his car and left it at the airfield. Like, for, I don't know if he's assuming that somebody's going to pick it up or- For Robbie Coltrane to take his suitcase Robbie. out. Yes. Did you notice that? I did notice that. <laughs> Melanie Anderson's okay. Um, She kicks ass at one point after she's escaping. After throwing that poor slave girl to certain death, our heroes do not worry about the wreckage they leave behind. You mean Princess Aura? Not Princess Aura. There's at one point when the slave woman comes in and she's like, hey, drink this.
2: His Imperial Highness will be here very soon. Shall I pour? Please. Wouldn't you like a sip? Oh, no. It's forbidden for our slaves. Oh, believe me, honey, that's quality stuff. Have some. Listen, we're all girls here. I won't tell. Just one sip. Live a
0: little, huh? So then she takes the slave's clothes, leaves her there to be found by Ming, the Merciless, so you know that woman's not going to get any mercy. Yeah. I think one of the things that I liked about it was, even though the story is pretty quick. There's not much in the way of story. I thought some of the strange details were kind of fun. And I don't know if they were knowing per se. And it was also surprisingly dirty for a thing that was aimed at kids. And so the surprise of all of that made it seem much more than just sort of a a conventional piece of children's fare.
1: Well, if you look up, say, Ornella Muti, who
0: I did because, wow, she's basically a soft core porn actress from Italy. Which are you referring to? Viva Italia? Death of a corrupt man. The bishop's bedroom. Oh, that's see. I mean, that is a good one. The costuming is cocaine
1: fueled. I I would say it's insane. I mean, I loved it. I mean, the whole movie is shot on one soundstage where you can see the industrial floor of the sound. Like they didn't really work that hard to box out the space. It was like kind of looking at the death scenes from all that jazz filtered through the music of Queen. I don't know what Dino is doing. I mean, Dino either needed to get more involved or stay away. Like it sounded like this this sweet spot of involvement that he had in this movie that everyone talks about. To me, I'm going to say that sounds like where things went wrong.
0: Did Michael uh, Hodges have a sense of humor because oh, yes. you have the space thing coming down and you, you have these sound effects up until the hot hail hits the ground and then it like falls into a puddle and you just hear a little like spoosh. Uh <laughs> It's all this like buildup for this anti-climax. Ming has a lot of buttons
1: to drop whatever hot hail is. Also known as meteorites, people. <laughs>
0: I was the, You don't the, need another word for that. I took it at that. I was like, okay, so it's like hail, but it also burns you a little besides like pecking at your glasses. <laughs> I wonder, I don't know. I, I again, I enjoyed the, the strangeness of starting with, uh, from the spaceship's point of view, looking at Earth. And you already, <laughs> somebody pointed out, I think it's on the IMDb under like the goofs thing. Ming says, what is the name of this planet? Earth. Even though on the buttons, oh, one of the things it has is Earthquake. But it just goes to show, I guess physics is the same everywhere. Maybe we name the planet after the phenomenon. (laughs) Who are you (laughs) to say? You're very right. There are no mistakes, there's only-
1: Let's use the medium of podcasting and, and, and play some of this incredible film. This is the beginning when they're crash landing on planet Mongo.
0: The set of Enemy Mine. Well, I think there's a lot of like repurposed stuff from Barbarella too. Oh yeah. And hey, Conan the Barbarian. Uh huh. Was Conan before this? Uh,
1: I think so.
2: Wake up, Dale. Wake. We're okay
1: that's the dubbing
2: flash remember we're on the ground back home i don't think so hello we're from earth friends (laughs)
1: That's clearly a voice actor overdoing Sam Jones' voice. I'm going to sort of play a little of this to show you what Sam Jones sounds like now. Granted, it's a few years later. However, his voice is so distinctive, there's no way it didn't have some touches of this. Real Sam Jones.
2: Who wants to hire a a bitter, angry actor who's blaming everybody else? You know, a lot of people say, oh, you got to separate your personal life from your movie
1: life. I don't know how you do that. He talks like this. He's a very, he's 6'4". Yeah. Ex-marine, incredible physique, ex-athlete. I mean, it's just so weird. The documentary is so bizarre to me because it posits him as this tragic figure. Just because you randomly ended up in a movie doesn't entitle you to walk amongst Hollywood royalty for all time. Dino De Laurentiis gave him really good advice, which was like, this guy was a little wild. He was getting in trouble in London before they started filming. He was getting in fights. He showed up with a cut on his forehead to filming, causing more trouble than his box office cachet, which at the time was non-existent, would allow any actor to get away with. And Dino De Laurentiis told him, look, for this, you do the work, you put in the time, you show up. After this, you're a star. He's portrayed in the documentary as if he kind of like learned so much, yet he still says, oh yeah, I just listened to my agents. Right, His agents, I guess at the time, advised him to walk off the picture. And that was bad advice. And he paid the price. And he probably was blacklisted a little bit after this. And I guess there were two sequels signed up that never got made, even though the
0: movie was huge in the UK. What does that tell you? That they have a better sense of humor. Oh, that's than a the good spin on it, Chris. And that they enjoy a certain European garishness in their <laughs> costume design. So, I don't know, Life After Flash, I found so weird. But well, what brought you to Well, because I remember
1: hearing about it when it came out, but since I'd never seen Flash Gordon, I yeah. didn't really understand what it meant. Yeah. And a couple of people have talked about it. Some friends of the pod have mentioned this. I know Fraser is a big friend of the pod who you just met with over the comic book stuff. I think he loves, unironically, Flash Gordon. And there are many people like that. So I think in my mind, I just thought, well, I'll see it. And then I'll see the documentary about life after Flash.
0: And I like those types of documentaries anyway. I think the people who unironically loved it in the documentary, that to me was the most interesting part. Not just to hear their praise of it, but because I enjoyed it more than you. I thought the design was fun. Maybe this is just because I saw it when I was six and then I saw it now. It's been a lot of time since then. Six is really the target mentality. I mean, I'm I'm being honest. That's that's why everyone who talks in the documentary loves it, because they saw it when they were six years old. Which is why I didn't think that it would hold up, but there was so much dirty, (laughs) dirty stuff in there. Aura, played by Ornella Muti, is climbing all over him while telepathically speaking to his girlfriend, who, P.S., they become attached pretty quick. Like, as Uh, soon as they land on the planet, she's already getting jealous. Flash is so delectable. Well, he does also propose to her. He's also making out
1: with Ornella Muti. I mean, who wouldn't? But I'm just saying there's a lot going on there. He's making
0: out with her. Uh, But she's climbing all over him. The fact that Dale is going to be, they use the word concubine. Yes. Like, very quick, which I'm sure at six, I was like, Okay, whatever that uh, is, whatever that is, and he's got a lot of them, and they talk about how much sex Ming yeah. has, and he even has a proto space Viagra. Yeah, and the girls have a female
1: Viagra liquid that they drink to render them. Uh, it's just vodka, I'm guessing, like
0: <laughs> because even they describe it. It's like it will make your nights with Ming more. Drink
2: this. What is it? It has no name. Many brave men died to bring it here from the galaxy of pleasure. It'll make your nights with Ming more agreeable. Will it make me forget? No. But it will make you not mind remembering.
0: All of that oh. stuff, like, I was very surprised. The fact that they whip Gornalamuti with her, her skin tight red satin pants. <laughs> I mean,
1: she, she looks a little win. like Mila Kunis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mila Kunis is, is if if people haven't seen the movie and don't plan to see the movie, when we're talking about Ornella Muti, she's kind of like a Europeanized Mila Kunis. That's Mm -hmm. what she looks like. Kind of a feral approach. She's got teeth.
0: (laughs) I mean, I do too. Do I look like Mila Kunis?
1: (laughs) Let's watch a little of her acting alongside Sam J. Jones. This is the scene you're talking about in the telepathy machine in the spaceship as they're approaching.
2: It's a thought amplifier. I'm going to think to Baron and tell him to expect us
1: you're kidding think
2: to him of course don't you have telepathy on earth hey could i call dale on this if i showed you how but i'm not going to please show me how to tune into dale you have to persuade me much better than that what are you doing are you mad let me go we're diving into phrygia pull her up just tune me into dale Flash, are you, are getting, you getting over? Skin? Over, over. Oh, my head. Oh, Flash, if it only was you.
0: She's not getting me.
2: Don't use your mouth, use your brain.
0: Bro, the only time Sam Jones has ever been told <laughs> that. Over. It's not a radio, Sam. A you don't need to say over. Roger Wilco, over and out. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is a choice that they made either in the dubbing uh, or in his there acting. They were not choices. There but was just... what, in Life After Flash, that people were talking about that. just sort of didn't realize it. He is so guileless; it's charming he's a, that he's just, he's like a go. He's a big dumb uh,
1: football player. He's a dumb galoot. But what he is not is Harrison Ford in Star Wars. One of the things that irritated me in the documentary. I've been reading Don Siegel, the director, Don Siegel's book, Mm -hmm. which is refreshingly free of pompousness and directorial superiority. And he refuses, even when it would be very convenient for him to go back and pretend that when he was directing Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1958, that it was this intentional allegory film, which a lot of people do involved in the making of the movie, by the way, because it's become that. He's like, let me tell you. We were making a bee monster pick. That's what we were doing. When you're looking at the documentary for Life After Flash, some of the other people interviewed have a refreshing sense of proper size for the film in their retelling. Yes. But many of them seem to have fallen prey to either making a living off of the fact that it's become a cult hit or are now talking about it as if it was this great experience for them, which if you pay attention to what was going on when they're making the movie, it really wasn't. It was a mess. I mean, Sam Jones can talk all he wants about, you know, how now I do it for the fans and I make sure to, but you're still doing a thing where they're paying 25 or $50 a piece to get a photo of you. It's that sort of like bizarro, almost entitlement that like you're entitled to have this life as a movie star. Because
0: fate interceded and you randomly ended up in a movie once. He didn't come across that way to me because, you know, it's however many, close to 40 years but after What about fact- his friends
1: crying? Sam suffered so much. I mean, he suffered. What I mean, did he suffered? Divorce and addiction. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So he was a serial philanderer and loose cannon who burned all his bridges. And guess what? Yeah, he ended up flat broke, divorced, estranged from his family. That's what happens when you act like that. But you're saying
0: that that's not- The is all self-inflicted.
1: Well, fine, but I mean- Because you you, you suckled at the teat of Hollywood and you acted like a colossal asshole and were
0: entitled and enabled to do so by the industry. I disagree to me. It seems like the arc is about him getting over that entitlement, of being so self-involved, whether he did or didn't suffer enough, you know, I don't know. I'll take the woman at her word, even if it's self-inflicted, it, can suck. And it's, it's a spiral down that people go through. It was a little churchy for me, but having the very fact that he's finally able to realize whatever dreams I had or things that I wanted or felt that I was entitled to partially because, and again, this is not an excuse, but the, the movie does go into his life before and the, mm-hmm. uh, the death of his brother and the, Uh, highly functioning uh, alcoholism of his father and stuff like that. Is there a rollicking and entertaining
1: documentary to be made about the making of Flash Gordon, the fact that it's a cult hit, and the oddity that Sam Jones's life has been since circumstance intervened randomly? Dino De Laurentis's mother-in-law saw Sam Jones on the dating game on TV and recommended him to Dino. That's right. how he got cast in the movie. I have a thing with those autograph alley. The whole concept mm-hmm. of that, I think, is just a little weird. Back in the day before you had to pay to get the signed photo or the personalized grip and grin with the star. It used to be you could go to those things and you'd pay your admission. And part of the attraction was there's right. an autograph alley and you could go like interact with these people. And that was great. It was a little less sleazy that way. The personal thing now where it's like, I think I told you, I went to the Comic-Con once and like Uhura was sitting there like making desperate eye contact to try and like get you to come over to her booth and pay her 25 bucks to get an autograph photo. Right. I don't begrudge anyone making a living, but it's just a, you're you're that's kind of
0: making a living off of your past in a dignity free environment. To me, that that's a larger thing about the corruption of fandom in general. It's a whole industry that to my mind is very ugly, not even so much for these poor schmucks for whom this is either a second income or living off your past. Everybody's probably a little <laughs> different. Like, I'm sure there are some of these people that do their I.T. work during the week do the odd con, uh, you know, because they were once sure. a Hawk person in, yeah. you know, TV. but even that, I get
1: interacting with the fans and it seems like there's probably plenty of opportunity. You could do that without the commerce aspect attached to it. The story I was talking about was really only maybe 10 years ago at Comic-Con in New York. Even then it still had a kind of raggedy charm. And it was like, okay, Uhura is there. Linda Hamilton was there. Tom Noonan was there, which was great. I love Tom Noonan. It was great to be able to have an interaction with Tom Noonan. And he had kind of a good humor about it, but it was a little gross because of the transactional aspect of it. How many $25 photos can Uhura sell for four hours of her time at the Comic-Con? And the reality is, is like, you're still trying to hustle to either make a living at doing it or just kind of get, I think that as an actor, there are gradations of the attention that you're after. Mm-hmm. At the highest level, you don't have to do anything to get it, and you actually have to protect yourself from it. Yes. You can't leave and walk down city blocks without causing a crazy hoopla, right? Right. Uh, then, the, you know, as you move down the ladder of relevance and importance, you get to things like Autograph Alley at Comic Cons, which yes, big stars do show up in order to promote big movie releases, and I think when we went last year, the year before, it was kind of took on almost like a, there were like pens and like oh, fenced like said, in. it's, it's, it was, a, it's, it's a, was a huge crazy. industry
0: that is yeah. its own outgrowth. It's now too big and too strange, yeah. and, it, and it's. You know, this is something that I, that I think about with in terms of just how fandom has been leveraged and become a commodity. I mean, yeah. it's become an industry. Like that people, yeah. that's why the fact that people talk about the number of downloads of a trailer. Like, <laughs> so that true. is a commercial, but it's become the fervor and stoking yes. the fervor, soaking the fire of it, which, you know, I'm not totally immune to it. Like, it is fun to anticipate a thing. Everybody was excited about The Phantom Menace until it opened, and then it sucked. But, mm-hmm. like, the the year that was spent yeah. in getting people excited with little teases here, like, that's, that's now a huge industry. And now as, you know, as actors, I, you know— it seems to me, and you know, you probably would know this or be able to talk about ben, uh, better than I can. But it does seem that the age of like the huge movie star and the huge payout is not quite the same. And so, this leveraging your celebrity to do other smaller things as well, moving from being uh, an actual actor to being like a TV presenter. The fact that yeah. The Rock is producing some um, like game show that he's also yeah. the host on. There's just a, a need to sort of keep working to leverage your brand and celebrity. That's just become a, a new kind of profession. I guess More so. More so than the actual act, right? But I mean, going to the Comic Cons
1: that Sam Jones is shown going to, and his some of his co and some of his co stars. This is about capitalizing on a weird thing for some of these actors that happened to them, and to pick up some money. And that's really what it's about. And I, again, I don't begrudge anyone making money off of themselves. But I think if you want to remain a well-balanced person within that industry, that's one of the little ways I think you give away some kind of essential part of your soul is by commodifying your very normalcy as a person. And Sam Jones in the doc makes such a big deal about how personal he has learned to be. (laughs) But then he says – He just basically asks everyone the same question. Where'd you come in from? Mm -hmm. That's the personal interaction. And then there's a big envelope of cash where people are giving the money to get their photo taken with him.
0: It's just a strange thing to do. It's absolutely a strange thing to do. And look, he seems to be a strange guy. I know we're talking more about uh, life after Flash than about Flash Gordon. Like if they went deeper into, like, do you remember? So as he's on his way to his first con, he's talking to the camera and he's saying like, you know, I can be grudgingly patient and I'm hoping that the Lord will help me focus on the patient part. No, his wife said, you can be aggressively polite. And he said, please, Lord, lift the aggressive and leave the polite. Yeah. A guy who is walking that tightrope all the time yeah. of being in a thing where I got to be nice to people and yes. I got a glad hand, even though. And you can see when he's setting up his uh, table and yes. stuff. That yes, he can be a little bit imperious. That's and wrong. impatient. But to me, that's an interesting character thing of somebody who yeah. knows that this is their problem and they're trying yes. to sit on it. So if it got deeper into that, that might have been an interesting documentary. Or if it was just focusing on the life at the con. At these low-level cons, yeah, uh, that also could have been fascinating. Totally, and the making of the movie would have been fascinating. And, the of
1: the movie. and if you look at his credits, so he made like between one and ten of those types of movies a year, and I'm sure they pay very, very little to anything until Seth MacFarlane put him in Ted, where he had a little kick off that. It's about Seth MacFarlane seeing Flash Gordon when he was six years old, right. and the way that the scenes are filmed. Mark Wahlberg is the stand-in for Seth MacFarlane, and his idol worship comes through. And then, of course, the joke is like he's a coke-sniffing college girl sleeping, like probably like like he was, sort of just
0: after uh, filming Flash. Yeah,
1: and actually, in the documentary, his son is kind of mad at the movie. That's one of the ways you may be talking about where it gets a little churchy for you, because there's definitely a strong religious undertone going on in his life and his family's life. And his son is kind of weirdly defensive when they're doing the whole Ted section. It's part of the like Frankenstein weird part of the documentary is like the documentary sort of like saying, and then thank God for Seth MacFarlane. I mean, yeah. wow, he really like allowed Sam to be seen in a self-deprecating way. And we're kind of in this moment where we're talking about like how great it was and what a great experience it was and how he, what, he knew every single person on the set he knew the grip, he knew the guy bringing the coffee, but then the son is like, that wasn't a prayerful. He, he worked really hard to take out some of that stuff. It's just, it's just weird, it's just yeah. weird. I, I don't have, I don't know why it bothers me so much. I just don't have any tolerance for people who feel like they're entitled to stick around in Hollywood and have a movie career. Go fucking do something else. Yeah. Jesus Christ,
0: you actors. <laughs> Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind. A new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and *C Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy, delivered daily.
1: So now he's doing Accelerator. Sweet. But these are all again, Sean Young, Maxwell Caulfield. Like, you never forget Sean Young. Well, she's a little kooky.
0: She's, she's more than a little kooky. How dare you. Uh, didn't she like kill a dog or something? Oh, let he who is without sin. Didn't she like cast leave a dog stone. on James Woods's She did, she did some crazy no, shit to James she Woods. Did, I get no, it was with um, Michael Douglas. She put a rabbit in oh, a Oh, that's right. That's... she <laughs> boiled a rabbit. You're right. Mmm. Delicious. Anyway, you know, and it's like,
1: it's like uh, Bruce Campbell has handled it right, okay? Like Bruce Campbell is a B movie actor, Uh and has exactly the right tone and attitude about it. Now, I bet Bruce Campbell probably goes to a hell of a lot of Comic Cons too, and probably charges a hell of a lot of people twenty five bucks.
0: You cannot underestimate the like fear of starvation. True. feeling that every True. actor has between one thing and True. another. I can't judge these people for, for, the, for the 25. I wish I could get 25 bucks for my <laughs> uh, for my headshot. Um, I, at, at I'm, I'm, ha- I want to go to Autograph Alley. Believe me, I love it. I'm, yeah. I'm thankful
1: that it's there. I just find it a fascinating subset of the ecosystem. Totally. And I think that one's willingness to participate at that level is fascinating. And to your point... And someone must have done a kind of interesting documentary about this aspect yeah. of Comic Con culture, because it's ubiquitous and it's a big part of the business. Oh. And at the high end, I think I was telling you—I think I told you the story before—about we knew that the, one of the organizers of the of the New York Comic Con that year that I went and saw Uhura, and they were bringing Shatner in, and yeah. and they told they told us what the deal was, and for him it was a great deal. Yeah, it was a jet, private jet to bring him to New York. It was like a hundred grand cash, and he spent, I think, an hour and a half at the very front entrance point to the Javits Center, Mm -hmm. uh, signing autographs and having pictures taken. And it was very impersonal, and it was very brusque, except when the camera was on, that he put on the fake smile and did it. And so he was there for an hour and a half. They flew him there and i think he was flying from canada he came down 100 grand he spent an hour and a half he was probably home before tea time yeah now that i understand like great if you could do that uh 20 times a year that would be you're going to do it Mm -hmm. yeah no that's two million dollars yeah so i get that but what i what i don't really get is like, and I, and I actually get Sam Jones and I get like, I was a hawk and I get like, I had, I was another person in, in Flash Gordon. Like, I kind of get that. I don't get Tom Noonan. Like, what is Tom Noonan? <laughs> now believe me, I was glad to be able to go talk to Tom Noonan about heat and ask him all about heat. I was, he was like, and Tom Noonan had plenty of time to talk to me about heat and I didn't have to give him any money whatsoever. because yeah. not a lot of people were going by the Tom Noonan booth. <laughs> Right. That's what's wrong with this country. And, and then I was like, that's, uh, that's amazing.
0: Like, so that's what I, I just, I'm fascinated by it. Maybe we should do the documentary. If I was about to say, I mean, you know, it's also, you know, Tom Noonan for all I know. He could be a strange guy. He's like, listen, I have trouble talking to people. This is the only, like, I put myself. He had I'd all this to. stuff,
1: man. He had the photos. Like, yeah. And I think Tom Noon has been in so many things that he had like. This is the stuff that appeals you want me to- You me like from Manhunter? Yeah. I got Manhunter. Yeah, I got the Manhunter. Man you Hunter, from Seneca, Seneca, New York? Stuff. I got this stuff. So he had all the different like subsets of like, dude, if you're into Tom Noonan, yeah. <laughs> which I am, it's just, and that's why I was so disappointed when we went and 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 I was like, what is this? It looked like we were in line to get into the Super Bowl. Yeah. And you were like, this is how Autograph Alley is now. And it was basically like fenced pens. Yeah. And at the front of the fence, it had like, the name of the person who you couldn't even, you couldn't visually see, that's the other difference they made it. They made it so you can't see the person from the line. Yeah. Which is so fucked up because I guess people would just take pictures and just be like, I got my picture. I don't need to pay 25 bucks. So now they've did it so that you you sneak through this line only to reach a a thing behind pipe and drape where they are. Yeah. That's fucked up. I don't know why you nerds stand for this. No argument
0: for me. You know? The What's so funny only, is
1: you guys are so pure in terms of like the people that are really into like comic book characters and all this stuff. Like there's a a purity that you definitely value and that you definitely like slot artists and and writers and movies and filmmakers into based on a certain faithfulness to something. Yet you getting ripped off by the very industry you love doesn't yeah. seem to ever be... A thing that concerns you. Well, I mean, why don't you do something about it? Why
0: don't you lead like Flash Gordon led? I, you know, if we can get back to the thematic. Oh uh, God! Is there anything else to say (laughs) about this
1: stupid movie? Oh, by the way, you're going to turn over
0: the fate of the universe to the quarterback of the New York Jets. Uh, Good luck, world. The New York Jets, who's also wearing a (laughs) T-shirt with his name on it. (laughs) Uh, which I guess I read, so I don't know if this was backstory, like on the IMDb trivia thing, they said, the reason he has his name flashed on his shirt is a woman gave it to him, and he wears it hoping to meet the woman, which I was like, wait, is this Sam Jones' idea? Is, <laughs> is this true? Uh, that's what I thought too. Is <laughs> it in the Is that a script? character development part? I, it's already running pretty close to so two hours. They womanizing,
1: jet-setting, famous quarterback, <laughs> so desperate to meet women, he wears the t-shirt all the time in the hopes they'll meet again. Not women. That woman. So he's the quarterback for the New York Jets, which is laughable unto itself in 1980, or now for that matter. But Wait, wasn't Joe Namath a Yeah, that was 1969. That's that was the one and the only time the Jets ever won anything. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> what about Johnny Unitas? Johnny Unitas was not a New York Jet. He was a Colt. Well, they should have gotten him. So anyway, the famous football fight, which again, this, this makes my heart break for all you nerds who loved this scene. That's not how... Football is played. That's not what quarterbacks do. Like he's a acting, Mongo, he's That's acting like a running playing. back, first of all, and like blowing people out of the way. And then he cannot throw a football.
0: Yeah, uh, he can't. Well, it wasn't a football. It was some kind of orb that okay. was being given so you're as saying tribute. had he had a real football, he might. Oh be yeah, got get a tight spiral. spiral <laughs> you know, he's a quarterback for the for the New York Jets, and when the guards come in. Their guard uniform actually kind of like a 1920s football uniform. (laughs) Yeah, and then the women are in the cheerleader outfits on the side. (laughs) And then when Dale goes into the cheerleading 41, 42,
2: 43, go, 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 go.
0: (laughs) You know, that that held up for me. Did it? (laughs) Really? I I enjoyed it, though I did remember, I knew what was coming, that Zarkov would, uh, (laughs) here's an insight into my psychology, from seeing it in the theaters at six or whatever it was, I felt terrible for Zarkov for mm. screwing things up. And I felt that guilt up until yeah. two days ago. So the movie's written by
1: Lorenzo Semple Jr., I guess in this world, most famous for his contributions to the similarly campy Batman TV series from 66 to 68. But then he also went on to write a lot of really good movies. Yeah. Papillon, Parallax View, Drowning Pool, Three Days of the Condor. Drowning Pool, I don't know. It's based on a series of private investigator novels. Who's in Drowning Pool? Paul Newman, uh huh, Joanne Woodward, Tony Franciosa the 76 king kong another dino de Laurentiis. yeah that's the production. jessica lang one right right yeah with with and grodin bridges. and bridges i can't imagine it's good and then flash gordon And then never say never again. Maybe you should have said never again. (laughs) Although it does have Klaus Maria Brandauer. And and Max von Sydow as as Blufeld. He he, he sort of takes enough blame when the things that I've read him say about Flash Gordon and also deflects quite a bit of it at the same time. It sounded like many of the key people had very differing ideas of what they were there to do. You had one contingent that thought they were making a very serious science fiction movie. You had another contingent that was like, including the director, who's like, it's a one-dimensional comic book character they're not doing something serious here yeah and it sounded like even amongst the cast there was a wide disparate
0: view of what they were doing which you can definitely feel mike hodge called it the only improvised 27 million (laughs) dollar movie ever made
1: (laughs) i did love peter wingard as Clytus. i thought he was kind of fascinating and and gave a great performance uh, behind the mask yeah I think the mask was probably his idea. And he has one of the funnier interviews in the documentary. Yes. He's
0: so charming. I was sort of surprised that he lived kind of as long as he did because I was reading a little bit about him. The 90s. Where he was born, when he was born, Mm -hmm. what his name is are all a little bit murky. He lived this incredible life. Um,
1: Sorry, that's my.
0: Here I am ditching (laughs) on the nerds. Ditching on the nerds? (laughs) Healer, heal thyself. My text message (laughs) notification
1: is the Star Trek um, communicator. Yeah, that really punctured my balloon, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Matt, can we uh, bring up the volume on that sound? (laughs) Was it Peter Wingard they were talking about who
0: he had a really hard time because he was sort of an out gay man at a time when that wasn't done? When I was reading about him, I, I don't know how out he was or if it was sort of just known He also, a bit like Sam Jones, though I think with a little bit more justification, his star dropped due to his own behavior. The good humor he has in the documentary and the self awareness, Mm -hmm. I think there was a time that that got drowned in brandy. Ah, you know, in a very British way. In a swinging British way. Swinging, baby. He is the big inspiration for Austin Powers. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Tell me more. Uh, was, that's about it. said that Mike Myers like Flash Gordon is coming. Well, so what do you mean? <laughs> I, mean uh, I mean, I uh, can see Flash there, Gordon. He's, he's, he's coming down here. the hallway. <laughs> no, but uh, in an interview, Mike Myers said that Jason Wingard had that very distinctive. Interesting. Look. He made his name on a TV show called. Department S, he was this novelist turned womanizing, drunken sort of spy. Oh, uh, okay. And sort of a Bond ripoff. A bit, yeah. Though Bond has some qualifications. And this guy is like, <laughs> I'm a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> and then there was a spin-off series called Jason King about Oh, that Jason character. King, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's the part I think I was talking about. And I think it was during that era where he ran into some difficulties. Yeah, because he was because he was a big star and he started yeah. becoming a bit more like the character. <laughs> um, and like I said, that just sort of that look that he had of the floppy yes. hair and the uh, had a great the way that he dressed was was an inspiration for Austin Powers. Speaking of his look, and uh, you can cut me up, we might have to cut all of this, but here's a fun fact: in the X Men, there's these villains called the Hellfire Club, mm-hmm. and I thought that was members, a novel by CNN's Jake Tapper. He ripped it off. <laughs> from the exit. But when John Burns and Chris note. Claremont designed this after an episode of The Avengers, the 60s TV series, right. where Emma Peel had to go undercover in this, like, sex club, in this, like, hot, like, garter thing. Yeah. And so all of the men, the character of Jason Wingard looks like Peter Wingard. Interesting. Shaw, Robert Shaw. Okay. And Donald Sutherland became Franklin Pierce. From oh, uh, MASH. Right, it took Pierce from MASH and Franklin from, I think, another role that he had done. And something, Leland was Orson Welles, Hmm. the big fat member of the the group. Another interesting
1: thing I noticed, the opening of Flash Gordon presages the iconic opening of the MCU movies. Yes. Which I always thought was a pretty cool opening, even though I'm not really a Marvel MCU guy. I loved the flashing comics look. That was taken from this movie. Like, yeah, they did absolutely. that in this movie. And, it works, and it, works it works great.
0: And there was some essay that I was reading. It was like, the, the movie never becomes as good as that opening title it sequence. Doesn't. <laughs> uh, but a lot of other Jim Carter, for you Downton Abbey, you closet right. fascists. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> he's one of the Azurian men, and that's his first film role. Mm-hmm. Robbie Coltrane has his yes. first film role, closing the door of a plane. Did you notice Philip Stone from The Shining? No. Philip Stone, who plays- Where's he in this movie? In this, he's the priest that, spoiler for 1980s Flash Gordon, Ming tries to marry his concubine, Dale. I see. And he is the priest. Oh, that's a good one. And the bald friend of Prince Baron, the other Robin Hood guy, the other merry man, Mm -hmm. uh, that was Richard O'Brien, riffraff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and writer of the Rocky Horror Show. Sure. Uh, He's prominently featured in the documentary. Uh, That's right. Yes. And he's prominently- uh, He's got such a great look. Yeah. And a look that doesn't age. No. Anyway, those are just some fun, fun sightings.
1: So Queen famously did the soundtrack. And I think this is the first film that really features a prominent score by a rock band. The only other one I really think prior to would be Tommy, which sort of doesn't doesn't qualify because it's a movie about an album starring the band and blah, blah, blah. So (laughs) all of which makes sense. So this is the first bad Queen movie. Would you consider the the other one, Highlander, or the movie The Queen? No. First of all, love the movie The Queen. I've watched it probably thirty oh, times. Right. Watch it all that. the way when it's on. No, I'm talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh.
0: <laughs> you know, the only reason we're doing this is to try to capitalize <laughs> our Squeeze number two the last episode. Bit. Five thousand downloads later. <laughs> <laughs> but did I read this right? That Queen, as a band, did the soundtrack to two films. Was the, the other one? Highlander was Highlander. Oh, I didn't
1: know they did Highlander with um. What's his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The guy who played Highlander. <laughs> Christ- Christopher Lambert. Christopher
0: Lambert. Highlander is a good movie, though, Chris. Highlander is. I think that would be good for this because that's one of that's a we thing that we saw late. I would love to do but Highlander. People, only people are so into it. So into Highlander. Russell Mulcahy. Yeah, it says that. Great Queen... director.
1: Connery. Mm-hmm. Clancy Brown. I could definitely get into some Highlander, Chris. Yeah. All right, good. That'll happen. Well, well I mean, after we alienate all of the science fiction fans. Well, uh, also, by the way, in the beginning, when they get in the plane, um, that's not how planes work. When you're flying up at like 35,000 feet and hot hail breaks <laughs> into your windshield and you have no windshield, you don't just get to like keep flying normally
0: and have conversations. Why not? Uh, there's no oxygen. Up there, Wait a second. Okay? First of all, one, I don't think. That prop plane, I don't think it was getting up to 35,000 feet. And I thought Ming had, like, grabbed the pilots out, but... Yeah. Because he, the bodies
1: disappeared. Okay, I'll grant you that. How about this one? That's not <laughs> how rockets work. They launch the rocket because Flash
0: shoves Topol. How do you say his name? Topol. Because he used to do the circuit. He played Fiddler on the Roof. He's like, Tev. Tev, yeah.
1: Wait, is he, like, the iconic Fiddler in the Roof? Yeah. That's why we know him. And yeah. his illustrious multi-decade acting career. Yeah. yeah. Who are the great fiddlers? On the roof, specifically? Yes. <laughs> Why is the fi- I don't know fiddler on the roof.
0: Oh, so it's beautiful. Topol is the fiddler on the roof, or is that sort of a that's a Topol is Tevye, title? who's the the dad, you know, who's trying to marry his daughter off, but she's fallen in love with somebody that he doesn't approve of, oh. uh, and you know he, uh, but he's trying to make his way for his family. The fiddler on the roof. There's a story, uh, sort of a folk, folk tale that somebody oh, mentions okay. illustrating the story.
1: Okay, maybe planes work that way, but basically <laughs> rockets don't work this way, where you fall into
0: a red button on the side of the rocket and the rocket launches. Uh, that's not how rockets work, Jason. I have seen a bunch of movies and yeah that is <laughs> how it how works they, work? okay. they press a button that I says launch corrected. uh <laughs> I, we haven't talked about it, so i boy i enjoyed zarkov so his whole thing is i guess he was telling everybody at nasa that we were yes. gonna get attacked by somebody so we got fired for being crazy yeah now he's like now isolated he's, but he's built his own rocket to i guess potentially attack these invaders to save the world oh no he says he wants to go in peace he built the rocket so that he could go visit them and uh You know, unless he was. I think he he was going to go with a shank and then get him in the back. He always feels like he's in a movie where
1: he believed he was the star of the movie. Every. You know? Every good actor approaches every good that actor way. you must do it you must do it that way <laughs> another couple interesting things here in the scene where Dale is entranced by the hypnotic ring you know where she starts sort of feeling herself up Testament I guess to his the erotic power of his yeah. ring not of himself his ring has this ability to do this I guess the ring is kind of does everything it can kill ring, you it yeah. can turn you on according to the original storyline when she's entranced by the hypnotic ring she's having a vision of being on an erotic picnic with Ming in a 1920s <laughs> setting. You know, I those can, I erotic picnics of the 20s. <laughs> that is a very niche kink. I also love that Brian Blessed talked about when they were shooting the little bazookas uh-huh. that he was going pew, pew, pew. And they had to be like, uh, Brian, please don't make that sound with your mouth. It's going to be difficult to <laughs> get that around. Because he was like going pew, 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 pew while they were shooting. Oh, my God. <sighs> oh, it's, it's, it's really something. All right, let's do alternative casting. Yes. Casting. Put that one back. First one I saw was, would have definitely made it better, Kurt Russell as Flash. I would have loved to see that. Yeah. He could have done it great. Yeah. I don't know
0: why he didn't want to do it. Kurt Russell thought that the character in the script lacked depth.
1: Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Dino De Laurentiis turned down, let's count them, Fellini. He wanted Fellini to direct this. Yeah, uh-huh. George Lucas, freaking Sergio Leone. Yep, Nick Rogue. None of those were good enough for Dino.
0: Well, but they all wanted to do uh, different things. Well, <laughs> part of the problem was that Fellini, uh, <laughs> Fellini had contributed to the newspaper strip during World War II. Uh-huh. I guess as an artist, and was it uh, Fellini or Leone? But they wanted to make it more like the newspaper strip. But then Dino also claims that he was trying to make a serious science fiction picture. Mm. So... I mean, it's all in <laughs> the eye of the beholder. There's so many people talking about the, the movie. Everybody's blaming everybody else. And se- like somebody was talking about like Semple. <laughs> they were saying like, ah, yeah. you know, he really tried to get away from the humor. And I was like, I don't know. Is that true? <laughs> I think he kind of leaned into it. Arnold Schwarzenegger was
1: also considered, yes. but Dino nixed it because he couldn't uh, speak English so well. And Conan was a couple years later. Barbarian 82, Destroyer 84. Dennis Hopper considered for the role of Dr. Sarkov. I love Zarkov in the movie, but the zaniness of a Dennis Hopper, especially a 1980 Dennis That's Hopper, would have been yeah. so good.
0: Oh, you so think good. so? Yes. We needed a little of that. I guess that, I don't huh? know that I'd believe him as having worked for NASA. Like, I'll believe him as like a drugged <laughs> like, out war photographer, yeah. but not as somebody with yeah, a protractor. Yeah. War Notes. It was between
1: Topol and War Notes. And apparently, Dino flipped a coin and War Notes lost out. I think for the best. For the best. I mean, look, it's a space opera. It's a space odor. War Notes would have given it a little of that flair mm-hmm. from the Sergio Leone Westerns. That's probably why he was in consideration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He a makes player sense. in that stuff. Uh, but he lost out in. And, and the world's
0: the better, the worse. Nicholas Rogue was mm-hmm. attached to direct. But he had, yeah, he had this very different idea. <laughs> what did they call it? He had Debbie
1: Harry uh slated for Princess Orr and Keith Carradine to be being the merciless.
0: Would and I think Nicholas
1: cool. Roeg wanted to make a very Nicholas Rogue kind of like heavy picture.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that would have been great. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily.
1: Shall we move on to Rants and Raves? Let's do it. Okay. I think we both are going to share the rave for the news that broke late last night that the great Rip Torn passed away. 88 years old. I mean, I don't know if I'd call that a rave, well, a it's a for rave him. for his life, yes, for his yes. career. I'm not raving that he's dead. Sorry, Rip. Sorry that Chris stepped on your touching obit with his juve- oh, juvenile humor. He is
0: um, no stranger to
1: juvenile <laughs> humor. True. I want to start by playing a little snippet of one of the performances of his that I enjoy the most, which is in Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life. I love him in this movie. Well, Daniel, let me tell you what's going on. When
2: you're born into this universe, you're in it for a long, long time you have many different lifetimes. And after each lifetime, there's an examining period which you're in now. You see, every second of every lifetime is always recorded. And as each one ends, we sort of look at it. Look at a few of the days, examine it. And then if everybody agrees, you move forward. What do you mean move forward? I mean move forward, continue onward. The point of this whole thing is to keep getting smarter, to to keep growing. To use as much of your brain as possible. For example, I use 48% of my brain. Do you know how much you use? 47? <laughs> Three. I'm sorry? Three? I use 3% of my brain? Yes, don't worry about it. Everybody on Earth uses 3% of their brain. Three to 5%. That's why they're there. Three? Three. 3%? 3%? You mean nobody on Earth uses more than that? When you use more than 5% of your brain, you don't want to be on Earth, believe me. Well, not that your takeout places aren't lovely, but there are many more exciting destinations for smarter people. Now, being from Earth as you are and using as little of your brain as you do, your life has pretty much been devoted to dealing with fear. It has? Well, everybody on Earth deals with fear. That's what little brains do. What are little brains? That's what we call you folks behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me.
1: Brilliant. He carves out such a weird and interesting and unique row in this movie where he's friendly to Albert Brooks, mm-hmm. but he's always at this interesting remove from him. And he's not really his friend and ally, even as he's yesing him and glad-handing him yeah. and patting him on the back and encouraging him and, Albert Brooks is clearly just another cog in the machine that he's a part of the process of, and I just have always been so impressed that Riptorn is able to do both of those things so convincingly.
0: Mm-hmm. I just happened to pick out a little bit from a little article. Uh, I'll cut to the end because obviously his acting career with the Larry Sanders show probably being the most famous, the most famous, the most recognizable. Well, Freddie got fingered. The Tom Green th- Okay, I Tom mean Green it's Green close. It's close. iconic. <laughs> Yeah, again, speaking of juvenile humor, he juvenile is no humor. stranger to it. Torn also led a colorful life. He was once married to Geraldine Page. His attempts to start a racially integrated national theater in 1963 saw him the target of the FBI. His opposition to the Vietnam War led to a bullet being fired through his living room window. He was a favorite of Elia Kazan. Filmmaker Norman Mailer bit his ear after he and Torn got into a hammer fight. He won a lawsuit for libel against Dennis Hopper over a story about a knife fight the pair got into. He was also arrested after breaking into a bank. Well, he broke into the bank drunk with a loaded revolver, and
1: he thought it was his home. (laughs) So... Perhaps his wife at the time was really pissed off at the concept of him coming home drunk. Uh, yeah, he, had, he got it got a little away from him there in the late 2000s. Hopefully he found some peace of mind as he neared the end of his life. Yes. And cue the Colombo Cinematic Universe. Colombo Cinematic Universe. Ah, oh, one more thing. Thank you. Death hits the jackpot. 1991. He played Leon Lamar. That's a name of a character that's meant to be played by, <laughs> by Rip The <Torn. laughs> <laughs> name's Lamar. Leon Lamar.
2: Excuse me, sir. I understand that uh, you're the host of this party. Leon Lamar. I don't believe I know you, sir. Uh, no, sir. No, you don't know. I'm, uh, I'm with the police, sir. That's not for real, is it? It certainly looks real Oh, it's for real, sir Yeah, yeah, that's me right there, Lieutenant Colombo I'm with the LAPD Have we been getting too rowdy here? Oh, no No, 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 sir, no No, I wonder, uh, could we find a place a little bit more private?
1: Sure Another Riptorn performance that I've always found so powerful and is only one scene is a movie I'm a huge fan and obsessive of, which is The Insider, Michael Mann's oh, The mm-hmm. Insider with Russell Crowe uh, and Al Pacino. Riptorn plays what they would call a dustbuster, like in Primary Colors, you know, where you're someone who digs up opposition research on someone in order to dirty them up in the press. And he plays, I think, a, ba- a real life person named John Scanlon, who is well known for being an operative who would essentially dig up the dirt required to destroy the credibility of people that were threatening very wealthy and powerful institutions, in this case, the American tobacco industry. Uh. And Rip Torn has just one scene in an office with a couple of other people. He's on the phone. He's watching a news report about Russell Crowe's character's ex-wife, whom he divorced when she got MS and a shoplifting charge that the character then had. And he has no close-ups and all of his dialogue is taking place on the phone and he interrupts the phone call just to watch a thing and then tell one of his underlings to cut that into this attack ad. But man uses Rip Torn's... Physiology so well, and he's shooting him in like really close behind the ear, that like Michael Mann shot. Uh He just uses his voice and his presence and kind of a wide shot that takes in the office that's right on 6th Avenue across from Rockefeller Center. And it has this menace that's so hard to do. But when you have an actor like Rip Torn who could do that menace as well as he could do the effortless comedy on display in the Larry Sanders show uh, and Men in Black and all of his many, many roles. I mean, he's got one of those incredible timelines on IMDb that's really... (laughs) It keeps going. <laughs> it goes from 1956 to the present day. 2016 is when he stopped working. He was 88 years old. Just a colorful character. One of those great, iconic character actors. And I really can't think of anyone else like him. Mm-hmm. And Larry Sanders, I mean, my God. Yeah. Artie's just... Yeah, that, is, that is enough for one man. I mean, and yet he
0: did much, much more.
1: He's as important to that show as Larry as, as Gary Shandling. Like, yeah. If you don't have Artie... And the very, again, this very unique space that he occupied as Artie. He's the bad guy, he's the cheer-upper, but he also always kind of obviously thinks Larry is a dolt. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yet also loves him and understands that his bread is buttered by him. So, great actor. As someone said, difficult to say, rip, rip, torn. Uh, That's the only rant I have, rave, rather. Rant that he died, not rave that he's dead. Right. By the way, Chris, did you get hearing aids? Come again? I saw you wearing what looked like blue hearing aids. Oh, uh, headphones. Oh, those are your headphones? They look, that's an interesting piece of industrial design. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Because they look exactly. I I didn't design them. They look exactly like hearing aids did about 25 years ago. Yes,
0: you know, you're not the first one to remark about it, but they are
1: durable. Well, I noticed it because yesterday as I was leaving the office, I also noticed something that I literally stopped and I almost wanted to take a picture of, but I thought it would be rude. I was crossing the street and there was a woman who was blind and had one of the Keens. Uh Uh-huh. She was holding the cane under her arm and was texting on her phone. Interesting. Now, how do those two things go together? Are there Braille phones? There must be some. But some she was way typing it, on a use, phone, yeah. which
0: involves looking at it. So maybe she was holding the cane for someone else. That's possible. She could have knocked somebody else down and taken the cane. <laughs> uh, but there also might have been like a sound prompt, you know, like when she's looking for an app. I didn't Do you have any other rants and raves, Chris? Well, I was gonna say uh, this might border on headline, but I think it counts as a as a rave. Mm-hmm. Your friend Andy King. Has struck a talent deal with Spoke Studios. What's Spoke Which we'll see in front of the... uh, They made something called The River of No Return. And we'll see him in front of his own TV project. Okay. and I think I enjoyed just reading the... King was the breakout star of Netflix's Fire documentary about the ill-fated Fire Music Festival, and admitted he was asked by the festival's organizer, Billy McFarland, to perform oral sex on a customs official in order to secure a large quantity of Evian water for the festival. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, that's a spoiler, but I guess we're far enough away. I hope he doesn't blow it. (laughs) The talent deal, that is. The openly gay king was shocked by the request, but was prepared to do so, even though ultimately he didn't have to go through with it. That, I think, is definitely a spoiler. (laughs) This is the second story in as many months of Andy King supposedly getting a talent
1: deal. And then also this one, I love that Spoke Studios uses the term a
0: sweeping talent deal in a competitive situation. Really? So this is for his TV rights, other acting, deal. his poetry, his poetry, his sculpting. Uh, <laughs> we're not letting anybody uh, anybody else handle his we sound want installation. To take Andy <laughs> off the table? It's, it's, it's sweeping. Oh, um, any temp work he might do or light sweeping, we also represent him for that. If Andy King isn't appearing at an autograph alley <laughs> near
1: you soon, he will be. Um, <laughs> More power to you, Andy. More power to you. <laughs> Uh, what if Andy, what if Andy King pioneered an autograph alley, where, for your 25 bucks, you got more than an
0: autograph? Uh, I think that's, <laughs> there are certain, that's not pioneering. That's, you get a that's bottle of There are plenty done. of places that that's being done quite a bit. All right, well, Chris, let's move on to headlines.
1: Headlines. Yes. I only have one for you today. Did you know that scientists are trying to open a portal to a parallel universe? Did you see oh, this story? No. Well, are you a Stranger Things fan at all?
0: Uh, moderate, moderate.
1: Yes. I've seen the first season. I don't know about you. I'm of the opinion that season three is when we've jumped the shark on stranger things. Wow. I thought season one and two were both great. Season three, unfortunately for me just kind of became that season where things are feeling a little rehashy. The voice are changing. (laughs) It just, it's just kind of like this, the plot, which always was a little bit, not the point by the time you're in a season three, if you started out with that, it gets very, very difficult to keep propelling things forward when whatever the story is, is so sort of unnecessary by that point. But be that as it may, of course, we have the upside down and parallel dimensions are popular in this universe anyway. And now scientists are trying to prove that there might exist a real life parallel universe and they're trying to open a portal to it. This is not just some fly-by-night science operation, Chris. (laughs) This is the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, which, of course, is very famous for
0: their singing group, the (laughs) Oak Ridge Boys. But they do real science. The Uh, Oak Ridge Boys are scientists. (laughs) See? (laughs) Sam Jones could have taken a page out of their book. They realize, all right, done with the singing. Why don't you come become a scientist? Anyway, the scientists there are conducting an experiment to attempt
1: to prove to the world that an alternative world where human life mirroring ours exists. So... They're using a beam of subatomic particles that were sent past a very strong magnet down a 50-foot tunnel and into a really powerful, untraversable wall. If the experiment setup is right, those particles might get transformed into mirror image versions, allowing them to easily pass through the wall. If it's successful, it'd be the first one to uncover the entry and existence of the parallel world. Now, I know this sounds crazy, but there was an anomaly that occurred during a previous experiment where one of the only explanations for how this anomaly anomalous result came to be was that there was an alternative universe. And as crazy as it sounds, the experiment is designed to kind of try to plus that out and prove or tell us what we already know. Which is that there's... Of course universe. there is. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any other headlines, Chris? Uh, nope. I wanted That's to just it. quickly read... I'm not going to do... Um, we're not going to do Latchkey TV this week. I wanted to share two bits of viewer mail. Finally. <laughs> yes, we got two this week. Uh, one was great uh, from Laura Sela. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Laura wrote us a very excellent emoji-filled email. She said, hey, guys, loving your podcast. You were wondering about Fatso, starring Dom DeLuise. Remember, we had a brief yes. conversation about that. She said, I thought it was great. Had some hilarious parts, including Anne Bancroft playing a sister, as we know, Anne Bancroft directed Fatso. I didn't know that. Wow. Let me just confirm that. She certainly wrote it. You're right. Yeah. Wrote and directed Fatso. Wow. Right. She also said, I loved your discussion on Do the Right Thing, being a native New Yorker. Love a good Mel Brooks and saw Blazing Saddles uncut last night. Hilarious, especially Harvey Corman and Madeline Kahn, speaking of flames. Yes. Who we lost too soon. I giggled like crazy. She's also hilarious in High Anxiety and Paper Moon, another fave of mine. Would like your thoughts on those two. Keep up the good work. Your banter is very entertaining. Ah, oh, it makes it all worthwhile. Does that make it all worthwhile? Laura, thank you very much for writing us. High anxiety. You know, it'd be worth going back to watch some of the Mel Brooks's. Yeah. Um, I would love to see Blazing Saddles again and see if it's as
0: bitingly sharp as I recall it being. I think with a lot of Mel Brooks movies, I remember loving 90% of it, but always the last 10 minutes mm-hmm. I'm just sort of like, hey. I mean, High Anxiety is his parody of the Hitchcock movies. Yes.
1: Paper Moon. I mean, I saw Paper Moon. Now, I, I can't watch any Ryan, what's his name stuff? Ryan O'Neill. Which is terrible. Because I love him, obviously, in his great Kubrick performance. Barry Lyndon. But um, I think we know too much about him now to really- I have to admit, actually, I don't know too uh, much about him. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's oh, not.
0: that is too bad. To get back to, to Mel Brooks, I have yes. to say, I mean, I've seen, I think, all of his- uh, His like, oeuvre. The big ones, the yeah. beginning. Like, I haven't seen Dracula, Dead, Spaceballs? But I've seen Spaceballs and everything before that. I believe I've seen, and I I think all of them, uh, all of them did hold up. Yeah, Young My Frankenstein. Is young Frankenstein. That's pretty much an icon. That, that's probably I would
1: say, just without looking at the list i'm gonna say young frankstein's probably
0: his greatest movie i like it even more than the producers which has its own charms and its own importance but i think he just did so well with parodies yeah i found the producers kind of inert like
1: the producers is a good example of what you're talking about it's kind of like hanging a whole lot of stuff on this one sort of slightly funny idea that you might have in conversation yeah what if these two schlucks tried to crash a broadway musical by writing a musical about hitler Like, it probably should just stop there and not become an entertainment conglomerate for 40 years. But I guess,
0: you know, that's what the people wanted. Can't argue with Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel. True. uh, Those performances. Well, you could, but you probably wouldn't do very well.
1: Yeah, High Anxiety. I wonder if the parodies hold up. I'd be curious to see Blazing Saddles again. Mm -hmm. That's one of those movies that at its time was considered so sort of avant-garde, but uh, I wonder if it still is. Anyway, thank you, Laura. That's a very good email. And then we got sort of a... A friend of me email from super listener Ben out in Los Angeles. Just listen to the shade contained in this other supposedly friendly email, Chris. And you help me decipher this. Here's a segment idea you might like, or in the case of Jason, you might hate it just to be contrary, then think of it four months later, assume it's original idea and start using it without giving any credit to the original source of the idea. Whoa. So that to me implies that I've done that with something that Ben has mentioned to me and that I've. B- I mean, I know you do it with me all the time, but I think contractually you're allowed. So I don't know what you're talking about, Ben. And like if you've got something to say, say it. Yeah. Okay? Wow. That's paragraph one. That does feel like shade. So anyway, here's Ben's idea. So now we'll really see what your ideas are all made about, Ben. Welcome to the arena, buddy. (laughs) This is what it's about. I see every week I sit here in front of the microphone, and yeah, I throw out a bunch of crazy half-formed, uninformed, non-formed opinions and ideas. Not even half-formed. Not even half-formed. Half-formed would be great. (laughs) But that's what I do, and you know what? I put it out there, man. Well, listen, let's see what you can do behind the safety of your keyboard emailer. Ben continues, a listener question each episode based on something that came up in the episode. This would generate more listener email, which you asked for, and then in parentheses, begged for, quotation marks, a few times this week. For example, for this week's episode, since you mentioned two of the greatest movie cameos of all time, Alec Baldwin in Glengarry Glen Ross and Steve Park in Fargo, and I strongly agree with both, you could have asked listeners to email in with other great movie cameos that you would read in a subsequent episode. My answer to that question, for what it's worth, not that anyone (laughs) asked, Ben. We didn't get a chance. And this is where if I was a penny man, I would just not read your answer. I wouldn't give you that moment. So Ben's edition of the greatest movie cameo, movie-o cameos movie-o. would be Christopher Walken in Pulp Fiction, The Watch Story. Yes. Billy Crystal, Princess Bride. That's oh, eh, no,
0: overplayed didn't... for me. I, I also didn't I, I'd even call it a cameo. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of in the movie more than one scene, isn't he? We're really going to be kind of splitting hairs here. To me, I always think of a, of a cameo as sort of being... Um, a cameo, you appear in the movie once and then you go away. That's but, a cameo. Uh, yeah. But the fact that it's like it is a plot point that yeah. they are there, and there's the scene where they're doing something to get yeah. them ready before going on the next level of the yeah. journey. Does it seems like a little bit too long to be considered a cameo.
1: Maybe that would be a good movie to do. Ben's final submission is Martin Scorsese and Taxi Driver, so he has the scene in the back of the cab. We uh, pull up, pull up, pull over here. What do you yeah, mean? yeah, yeah, it's good. I don't know if I would put that in greatest movie cameos of all time. I think
0: that's more a curiosity. I still um, wonder why he doesn't put himself in movies more. Marty? Yeah. Because, I mean, you do it once. It almost seems like, all right, I'm going to do that Hitchcock thing and be in every one. Yeah, we don't want but to do that. Unless I, unless he was like, ah, I actually didn't enjoy it. I don't think I did a good job. I or think, of
1: course, he did a good job in Taxi yes. Driver, but he's such a specific thing that it's kind of hard yeah. to see him over and over again. So anyway, Ben, I'd love you to write in or, you know, let us know exactly which idea of yours I stole and presented I would in like the podcast as if it was my own. And Ben, I think you know us and me well enough to know that if that did happen, it's only because of
0: my lack of a short-term memory. And he also has been introducing himself as Ben for a couple of weeks, but he <laughs> yeah. showed me his license. And that also, well, what about all the shade, like begging for viewer mail? probably right. I was, I felt like I Someone's was got some passive aggressiveness to work out. And Ben, uh, we could use the content. So if you want to come back at us, <laughs> uh, that's, that's great. <laughs>
1: Did I did I conclude Ben's email with the with the very positive things that he said, or did I f- neglect to read that? You did neglect to read that. Oh, okay. So he concludes it by saying, uh, "Keep doing what you guys do. I love the cod, cod past. Love the cod piece. Uh, thanks." Well, enjoy our last few moments before we get eviscerated by the Flash Gordon fans, which will descend upon yeah. us. <laughs> I can't wait. I could take him all except for uh, Alex Ross. Oh, uh, by the way, who is Alex Ross? Oh. Uh, I mean, I, he gives a very Jason, lucid. <laughs> Jason, who is Alex Ross? I mean, Alex yeah, Ross. Who is, is Alex Ross? That's, like, it's kind of like I know it, Gordon it, is it, coming. It, I understand. But a, I'm asking a very simple question.
0: Like uh, He's a comic book artist. Yes. Who's, uh, I got that from the camera. He has a movie, very you, uh, specific photorealistic style. Give me a recent title. Um, look up Marvels. Uh, but I was gonna also say at the convention, the oh, banner he's that he's the puts one who up, has this stuff. Okay, yeah. The banner that he is puts on. Yeah. And he does do mostly now he does covers, including a lot of stuff, I think the Ford Dynamite mm. This uh, isn't my thing stylistically. Wow. <laughs> is that That's is that weird. wrong? I, I don't think I just, no, ever it's just heard it, it ever is since.
1: I'm more of like a Sinkevich guy. I hear you. I All mean right. I look, there's room for everything. In the Sienkiewicz stuff, it's so artful. It's so cool and like almost avant-garde or not avant-garde, but um, abstract, I Mm -hmm. guess. Yes. And that to me, I
0: like that in this milieu. And despite how I reacted to Alex Russell's name, I am with so you. So he's a titanic figure in comic book yeah, art? And I have to say that I think partially because I don't necessarily love the photorealistic style mm-hmm. in the same way that I think I like live action superhero films more than animated. Mm. It's just amazing to see something that shouldn't work at all be that realistic. Yeah. So that's, that's Well, amazing. he's appearing at a Comic Con near you wherever you are. Yeah.
1: So at all times. At all times.
0: Until next week. May the same spirit of wonder and exploration which drew Flash and his readers on for 85 years and counting be with you, whether your ventures be outward or inward, because... Never,
2: oh never, nothing will die. The stream
0: flows, the wind
2: blows, the cloud fades, the heart beats.